say that is because uh, there's a note in the text that tells us what we're reading today happened at least 12 years afterwards. So there's a 12-year gap. And while we had ended last week on this, this period of uh, Nehemiah, we've been reading, actually covered about you know, three or four months. It ended on this wonderful note of celebration and victory. And then we come back 12, 13 or more years later. We return to the same situation and we recognize the changes that had been happening in this great renewal were not lasting it's, it's sort of a sad note. It creates a very different sense of the book. We're going to explore that together today and ask, what do we learn from the fact that this epilogue is, in a sense, discordant? It's off. It's different than what we would have expected. It's not the same triumph that we had last week. Thirteen years later, problems, serious problems, are beginning to emerge. I'll read the passage, and then we'll talk about it together. This is uh, the chapter uh, 13 of the book of Nehemiah, beginning in verse 1. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was in Jerusalem, for in the... Uh, 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked, the king, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders... And, uh, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs and all kinds of loads which they had brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. 
Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the door should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made, him, uh, made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And, uh, and one of the sons of Jehodiah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Shalabat, of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I said before that it was, and this was an epilogue. That is, it, it occurs afterwards. We saw the note that these things happen in the uh, 32nd year of Artaxerxes. If you've been with us through the summer and you had a really good memory, you might remember the book started in the 20th year. It's B- B.C. So 12 years at least have elapsed after 12 years Nehemiah returned uh, back to his job in the Persian Empire working for the king. He had to work for some period of time. Then he returns and when he does, he finds that things have gone poorly in his absence. It is an epilogue, but I, I said the title of the sermon here is a, a discordant epilogue. And as I wrote that, I thought, I'm not entirely sure that's a good title for a sermon. Uh, the idea is a good sermon title shows you something of where we're going. It might pique interest and summarize much we're going to talk about. And it, I wrestled a bit with this week with whether that was a good title for a sermon. It's a bit of a mouthful. And unless you have your thesaurus on hand, you, you might not actually be sure what I'm even talking about. You might think, in, you know, an epi what and a, and a discordant. Isn't that a, a sort of car? Um, what is going on here? Well, we noted this was a... a 
a section of action that happened 12 years later. It's going back to the scene. It's sort of like a, a, a shot in a movie that shows you know, many years later. And what we see when we look at it raises serious doubts about much of the optimism we would have had in chapter 12. What we see in this passage is discord. And the reason I chose that word is that discord can be a sign of things that are broken. But it's also something that can be used in music to heighten our sense of anticipation and to move us forward in a musical piece. Now, this is uh, the, the uh, you know, every time I give a musical illustration, I have to check it in advance and give a little bit of a disclaimer. Uh, but I'm been told this is actually true by people who know music. And I'd like to give you an example. This will be a, a, an example, an illustration that is live, uh, live action for you. Um, sometimes in music, a, a set of notes can be used that's just a little bit off. It creates a sense of tension that, it, that moves you forward in expectation. The most famous example of this, one that even a, a, a person like I might know, um, is the beginning of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You might be familiar with that. In fact, I'm told the entire first set of the, of the symphony is actually creating a sense of longing and anticipation to move forward. Um, so to help you, for those of you who don't immediately call it to mind, Pat has agreed to play the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and then we'll talk about it. All right, Pat? Thank you, Pat. <laughs> you have to admit, that's a whole lot better than me doing this and trying to bum, 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 right? That, that was better. Now, even if you're not a musician, you would recognize that that could not be the end of the song. It couldn't be the end of anything. It was, it was creating a sense of anticipation. There was musical discord that made us want to move forward. This passage is full of discord. Some of it is, in, is, is such that you only see it when you've been following along in the story. Some of it we feel because we're modern people reading an ancient story. We'll talk about both of those things. But the idea that we want to center on today is that in this passage, this closing note of the, of the book of Nehemiah, there is an intention to move us forward with a sense of longing for something more. And let me just highlight some of the discord that we see. And, and, and again, for some of you who have been with us all summer, you, you can key in on why this is uh, so discordant in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we see in the beginning this, uh, this situation where a room in the temple had, be, had been given to someone for a non-religious purpose. And we, we can sort of pick up on why this would be a problem. There were supposed to be things in the storeroom uh, that were being used for worship in the temple. But while, verse 6, while Nehemiah was in Jerusalem, he came back and discovered that Eliashib, who had charge over the rooms, had given one to someone for their own personal use. And not only was it for their personal use, those of you who have been with us for the story know that the person who received this, Tobiah, has been an enemy of Nehemiah and of the people of Jerusalem for much of the book. In the early chapters, Nehemiah and Sanballat, who shows up later, were the chief antagonists. They did all kinds of things to cause trouble for Nehemiah's efforts to rebuild the city. 
They, had, they were outside power and they didn't like the idea that Jerusalem could be restored. It would threaten what they were doing. So first of all, in chapter 2, they used their words to mock and to create uncertainty and to undermine Nehemiah's efforts. When that didn't work, in the, in the next chapter or two, I think it was chapter 4, they actually came up with a plot for a physical invasion. You may remember that part of the story of Nehemiah. They're going to rebuild the walls of the city, but in order to do it, they have to have a, a weapon in one hand and a, and a tool in the other because the armies around them have gathered. That was Tobiah and Sanballat. And when that didn't work, the final thing, and I think this is also chapter 6, they plotted to try and lure Nehemiah out of the city and kill him. Three different attempts to undermine the work of progress in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah goes away. He's there 12 years. He goes away. And when he comes back, what has he found? These very enemies have wormed their way into the heart of the system. Tobiah had money, resources, and power. There must have been some exchange that got him a room in the temple, in the very center of religious worship. He was not only misusing the temple, but he was an enemy. They say the cat's away and the mice do play. It's as if the, the cat leaves and, and they've... Oh my, I didn't think about this illustration enough in advance. Something bad happens, right? Here's the illustration I, I did think of. It might, it's not as good as something to do with cats and mice, but you'll get it as Pittsburghers. Imagine, imagine that Mike Tomlin is away scouting a team and he comes home and found, finds they've given a prime room in the Steelers' practice facility to someone else. Maybe, his, maybe the management's excited about it. We've got a great deal. We're getting a, a great rental rate on this room. There's a fellow from New England, uh, B. Belichick. He's reserved this room. He doesn't even want to use anything. He just wanted a window at the practice facilities. He's not going to come out. Steelers fans know what I'm talking about, right? Their arch enemy, the coach of the New England Patriots. Imagine he had a room in their practice facility scouting everything they were doing. Now, it's absurd, and you might be wishing for the analogy of the mice and the cats at this moment in time, but you see a little bit of the weight of what's going on. Now, the situation gets worse as we go forward with the story. We look at the story a little bit more, and we find that's just, that's just the tip of the iceberg. In verse 10, this is what happens. In verse 10, he, he tours the region, and he finds that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. The Levites were the people in charge of the religious activities. And it was dependent on everyone in, in, in Jerusalem and Judah and the surrounding region to support them so they could do the hard work of sustaining the, the uh, religious faithfulness of God's people. And here's what you need to know. If you weren't with us this summer or if you simply forget what happens in Nehemiah from week to week, the reason this is so powerful and so discordant is because it's the exact thing that they had promised to do only two chapters earlier. Chapter 10, after this great religious renewal and revival, they made several promises. They said, generally, we're going to obey all of the law. We're going to obey everything that, that, that God tells us to do. But Nehemiah led them to highlight three things. Three things that were really going to be problem areas for them. Three places where obedience to God was meeting a rub against their lived situation in this city at this time and this place. And he said, be on guard for these things. And the people said, we'll be on guard. 
They were going to support the work of the house of their God. They were going to support the Levites. And the conclusion of chapter 12 shows they did that very thing. They set aside their money and their resources. It must have been sacrificial because the Persian Empire was still demanding taxes. They're working hard, hand-to-mouth existence in an agriculture, uh, agrarian culture. And yet Nehemiah leaves and things begin to unravel in his absence. The thing they had promised to do, they weren't doing. In fact, as we go through the passage, we see all three of the specific things they had promised to do are going wrong. Verse 15, he said, In those days I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath. And as the the Tyrians bring their goods in on the Sabbath day to sell them in the city, the people are buying them. It's exactly what they promised not to do. It's exactly what Nehemiah warned them about. He leaves for a little bit. He comes back and they're doing that thing. Finally, in verse 23, the problem of intermarriage, religious intermarriage. It's not primarily uh, ethnic intermarriage, but in those days, Israel was both a people group and a religion. And this has been a problem down through the ages. Nehemiah cites the prior example of Solomon. Solomon, who married women who worshipped other gods, and by the end of his life, he was doing it too. He made a compromise with the world around them. Whether it's sons or daughters, when they were given in marriage to someone of an outside religion, there was a necessary compromise. And in this example, they were losing the ability to speak, it says, to speak the language of Judah. Which is a big deal. The, The writing of the prophets the, the, the language of the law of God was in the language of Judah. Probably Hebrew is what we would expect. They were losing it. And again, this is the exact thing that they had been warned about. They promised they wouldn't do it. Furthermore, if you think of Ezra and Nehemiah as a unit, this was the big problem in the other book as well. Those of you familiar with the the biblical story know that Ezra confronted the very same thing just a generation before, and here they are again. Where we ended with great hope at the end of chapter 12. God working in a difficult place. Restoration, renewal, revival, reformation. Nehemiah closes with an epilogue. It shows forward and it says, is this really the solution? Is Nehemiah really able to bring any lasting change? Now, in this particular passage, he does. Nehemiah exerts his considerable influence and willpower, and the the people do submit. It's not wholesale rebellion. But you're left asking the question, what happens when Nehemiah leaves again? He still works for the king. He can't stay forever. What happens when Nehemiah dies Where was this all going to go? One of the key features of the passage is this repetition of Nehemiah's first person uh, prayer where he closes each of these three sections of backsliding and unfaithfulness with a prayer. He says, oh, remember me, God. And it seems to be raising the question, will anyone else remember? Or is it God alone who remembers the faithfulness of Nehemiah Will the work of his hands, all these years of faithful involvement, will it really only prove to be a sandcastle built too close to the tide? 
one scholar, I included this on the, the front, uh, the reflections, you can read it later if you want, but one scholar concludes or uh, uh, summarizes the work of Nehemiah by saying, it really ends with a whimper. It's discordant. Even at times discouraging. What do we do with that? Well, there's two, two things we do with it. Uh, and that was intentionally a very long uh, intro, sort of act one. We have two more parts, two solutions. The first is we remember how it fits in the bigger story. And the second, we see that weakness can lead us to hope in a salvation that's outside ourselves. Weakness points us to Jesus. So uh, first of the two solutions here to this uh, profound problem, uh, what do we do with Nehemiah? I think we have to remember that Nehemiah is not the end of the story. Now, he is the end of something. In fact, Nehemiah, as we said, this chapter 13 is not only the end of the book of Nehemiah, it's the end of Ezra-Nehemiah. It's the end of the story of God restoring his people after exile. But if we were to look at the Old Testament, the first 80% of the Bible, we would recognize that Nehemiah is actually the end of all the history recorded in the Bible. The, the book of Esther, which happens, chronologically, happens later in the Bible as you, you know, go page to page, actually occurs in history between, between Ezra and Nehemiah. So what we have here in chapter 13 is the end of history in the Old Testament as it's recorded in the Bible. Now, it's not that that history ended, God continued to be at work, the world changed, eventually the Persians are overthrown by the Greeks, and then the Romans. God was present. But But the history of the Bible, the Old Testament ends here. It ends with a picture of God working and restoring, but it's discordant and it's just not fully resolved. And I think that's intentional. It's intentional because it's really the end of the first act. To go back to our analogy of discordant music, if you, were, uh, if you went to an opera and you, you stopped halfway through and you went to the hall and you're talking with your friends, your friends who are familiar with opera might say, I feel like so much is unresolved. If you're like me, you might say, I feel like I didn't understand. Why do they sing in Italian? And they use so many notes. But the first act is meant to raise questions. They're not resolved at the end. And you, if, if it's done well and if you can understand, you, you know, I'm going to come back in and I'm going to see the resolution of that story. We experience this in other forms as well. I use a, a less highbrow analogy, more at my level, maybe yours as well. Some movies end this way. Uh, in our own Kerber family, we had a painful experience with a, a movie that ended with a very discordant ending. Uh, we went to see uh, a movie that ended badly. And the backdrop of the story is that we were actually trying to do a movie night uh, to celebrate and feel better about ourselves. Um, <laughs> Uh, sometimes parents, uh, myself, uh, don't always think this out, but we were realigning some things in the household and, and rethinking how we did entertainment and free time and school schedules. And uh, it was hard, hard news for the family. So Chrissy and I decided we would celebrate by going to a movie. And we wanted an uplifting movie. So we thought Marvel superhero movies, that's going to be great. Uh, the good guys will win for sure. This was about a year and a half ago. And without reading much of the reviews, we went to see uh, the Avengers movie called Infinity War. Right? 
I think I have the right name to this, right? Okay. So uh, if you've not yet seen Avenger Infinity Wars, you can put your fingers in your ear and you hum softly because I'm going to spoil it. Ready? The ending is everyone dies. <laughs> not, not literally everyone, literally half of everyone. Half of the superheroes, half of all the people on earth, half of all the creatures and all planets in the universe die. What I didn't realize going into the movie, it was simply the, the first half, right? It was all a setup for the great conclusion of Avengers that came out recently and made all kinds of box office records. It was the end of the first act. Of course it was discordant. Of course it was leaving things unraveled and untied and un- unsatisfying. It, it was meant to prepare as many people as possible to eagerly anticipate the end of all Avenger movies, at least for the time being. That's what's happening here. Yes, God's at work. He's been at work. He's present. He's doing things. Salvation is real. But there is a very real discordant note that's meant to make us long for something more. When the prophets spoke of their time in exile and their return, they spoke in terms of glorious restoration. I've been reading on my own the, the prophet Isaiah in his second, ha- uh, second part of the book, Isaiah 40 to 66. He describes a return from exile, which not only did the people come back, but everything wrong is set right. And the nations come streaming to the mountain of the Lord, and all things are made new. And there are priests taken from all the nations to worship before God. And if you had been coming back in the first wave of exiles in the beginning of Ezra or Nehemiah, you would have said, this is it, it's happening. And if you got to the end here in this period of epilogue, you would have said, what happened to the dream? It's not yet here. I mean, how do we expect the nations to come to the glory of God when God's people themselves, under the, under the circumstances of renewal and revival, they, they can't even hold things together while Nehemiah goes back to the capital? How's any of that exalted salvation for all the nations going to happen? We're left with that. And as you follow along in the biblical story, again, we know of other things happening in history, but there's no prophetic voice given to us for over 400 years. And then the second act comes. And then in a flurry of prophetic activity, it's as if the gates of heaven are opened and God breaks in in powerful, extraordinary new ways. We begin the next chapter by reading the Gospels, the next act of the story. There are a series of miraculous births, one to a priest who doesn't believe, and then into his wife's relative, a young woman named Mary, born in poverty at the outskirts of uh, the Roman Empire, in a backwater city far from the capital of Jerusalem, a place called Nazareth. The angel shows up to speak to her and promises a glorious restoration. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his king, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And to her fiancé, 
struggling to come to terms with a, a pregnancy not of his own doing. The angel speaks to him in a dream and says in Matthew chapter 121, She will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We see God's plan of redemption that occurred beginning the moment our our ancestors first rebelled and fell into sin. He was working to bring restoration, redemption, to move to a greater act than what we see in Nehemiah. It moves to a character who will show up and do what Nehemiah could not do, who will save his people from their sins. This epilogue of Nehemiah, as it closes out biblical history and what we know as the Old Testament, this epilogue is preparing us for a second act that's far more glorious. What I'd like to do in the third part of today, I'd like to go back and just think of it, this passage in those terms. Think of the characters involved and, and think about how the, the discord in their lives, or to use another word, the weakness that's so evident in this passage is actually pointing us to something greater. You see, it'd be tempting for us to read this passage and think that the main point is that uh, as Nehemiah uh, uh, really exerts greater control, we too just exert greater control and maybe we can hold it together. I mean, you couldn't read it that way if you didn't know the second act. If you didn't know there was one who was coming who would be the king that sets all things right in him is salvation. And so what we're meant to do in the light of the whole story is to see these weaknesses as discordant notes that call us for something better. Let's think first of all about the weakness of the people. I invite you to think perhaps of how you see weakness in your life. We've already said that the things they were doing were the very things they were warned about. The very thing they had done before. Doesn't that sound troubling? Doesn't that sound painfully realistic? How often do you find yourself doing the same thing that you've done before? I think of the words of a British pop singer, Amy Winehouse, who sang really about her own struggles with heroin addiction. I treated myself like I knew I would. I've done it to me again. You feel that? Can you recognize the problem with these people? You're like, boy, I felt like I was doing well. I felt like I was growing. I felt like I was changing. And I'm right back in the same place I was before. How did that happen? How could it be after all these years I'm struggling with the same thing? That's very real. And friends, don't hear me saying today that you shouldn't put effort into what you should. The Bible's not unkind of the realities of effort in our spiritual life. But this passage invites us to look elsewhere. This passage points us forward. The longing that we feel, the disappointment we feel, the discouragement we feel is is all setting us up to move forward in the story. There is a king outside yourself who can save you. Who can save his people from their sins. His grace is sufficient. Jesus will spare no expense to save his people. He will live the righteous life we should have lived. He will go to death taking the curse of the covenant upon himself being hung on a tree.
to die. His grace is sufficient. His power is present. As you find yourself like these people in this story, going back again to the same thing, struggling in the same place, don't give up. Jesus is able. You are not. I was reminded as I talked with a friend this past week, this rich biblical wisdom that has found itself ingrained in addictions counseling and so many 12-step programs. The beginning of all growth is to know we're helpless. But there is a Savior who helps. There is a risen Lord who has very real power, who gives us access to the throne of grace. Look to Jesus. I was hearing the testimony yesterday of a a great pastor who's uh, gone home to be with God. And the people, as they remembered his legacy, said he told us again and again, look to Jesus. Because we need to hear again and again and again, look to Jesus. Salvation's found in him. Secondly, as we look at the passage, I invite you to think about it from the perspective of Nehemiah. What was Nehemiah thinking in these cases? Now, it's hard for us to read Nehemiah because we live a long time further in a situation far different. And quite frankly, it can seem at parts like Nehemiah is perhaps flying off the handle a little bit. And maybe, maybe he is. I don't know for sure exactly how we're meant to interpret all of it. Maybe if Nehemiah was here today, he would say, you know... This wasn't exactly my finest moment. He did some pretty extreme things. He comes back and he sees the the furniture, uh, the guest house in the the temple, and he throws it all out onto the street. And then when when he sees these people selling things, he threatens to lay hands on them and chases them out of the city. And probably the, the peak moment in the story is his response to the, the problem of intermarriage, right? It says he, he cursed them and beat some of them, and he pulled their hair. I'm not entirely sure what we're meant to make of that, but it does seem like he's having a bit of a temper tantrum. I don't want you to read it too hard, though, because we are reading it separated by a great deal of distance. Remember these two things as you read Nehemiah. First of all, he was the governor, and he had the power of the civil authorities to act. Israel was both spiritual and civil. They were both together. He was both a spiritual leader and a a civil leader. We don't live that way today. It would be entirely inappropriate for any governor to enforce spiritual principles. And entirely inappropriate for any spiritual leader to use force. But it was different. So we have to factor that in. And we also have to remember that even though this sounds extreme against the backdrop of how we lived, and honestly against the backdrop of how we live, it might not be as extreme as you think. Right? In the ancient world, the rulers were often incredibly brutal. We know of the Egyptians, when the Hebrews were too many, they threw their babies into the Nile. We know that the Babylonians threw people in a fiery furnace when they didn't kneel before a statue. We knew the Persians threw people who prayed to the wrong god in with the lions. We know that the Greeks did brutalities. And that the Romans hung their traitors on the cross. So that's the backdrop of the ancient world. If you you lived in that backdrop, you would say, you know what, I'll take the the hair pulling. 
And even as we remember our time, our civil authorities are granted great power. If you don't believe me, don't pay your taxes. It would be an experiment you can do on your own. See what happens. It is not optional. You may at first get letters of request, but if you refuse long enough, they will lay hands on you. And if you fight them, they will do more than pull your hair. It's an exercise of power by the civil authority. But I want you to think of Nehemiah in a different way. I want you to think of him as one who sees his life's work possibly crumbling before his fingers. I want you to think of him as someone who's invested so much and he's found it all beginning to crumble before his eyes. And maybe, maybe we have sympathy with his exasperation here. That's what I hear in the passage. Three times he says, remember me, oh God. And I find myself wondering as I read it, does Nehemiah wonder himself if anyone else will remember when he's gone? Or are they just going to revert? Like, like a paperclip stuck to a magnet when he's gone, will they lose the charge? You've done that experiment? You, you have a couple paper clips stuck to a magnet one after another. They have a charge. You think, wow, look at that paper clip. And when they're gone, the moment they detach... They all crumble. He didn't have magnets, but maybe he thought of something similar. When I'm gone, what will happen? When the king calls me back again, when my life ends, who will care for these people? Can they possibly hold it up? Do you find your own life's work is often in question? Friends, there's a better king. There's a king who is eternal, who sits on a throne, who's never called away, who is watching and always present to help. When we're introduced introduced to the Lord Jesus in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, he's called an eternal king. There is a king over the church, over your family, in your work, in your private life. There is a king, and it's not you. And you will not fail. Third and finally, think of the passage from the perspective of the outsiders. You may have felt this discord particularly keenly. There's a lot of language here about not associating with foreigners. There's discord, appropriate discord. And we might be tempted to apply that in all the wrong ways to our current situation. But let me tell you the actual biblical application to our lives as we think about this. And that is to say, God had made a promise to Abraham that his sons would be blessed. And all the rest of the nations are outside of that. There is a way to come in, but it's not easy. And friends, in that story, you and I are all in the position of outsiders. If the story of Nehemiah ended here, our appropriate reading of the text would be to say, we have far more in common with all of these Ammonites and all of these outsiders, we have far more in common with Tobiah and Sanballat than we do with any of the characters in the story. Quite frankly, most of us aren't Jewish. We're outsiders. And so as the story unfolds, it is appropriate that we feel a sense of discord. How can I get in? If you were all you had was this book, you would be asking that question. How do I get into the promises of God? Friends, Jesus is a greater king. He not only brings uh, grace and forgiveness. He not only is present 
throughout all things. But He pours out His Spirit on the church. The New Testament tells us that when the Spirit is poured out on the church, the old boundaries of descent from Abraham are changed. Now, by faith, everyone in the Spirit is connected to Jesus, and we are all sons of Abraham. That's the promise of of Paul in Galatians chapter 3. All of you who trust in Jesus by faith, you're brought in. All of the, the promises are yours through Him. Friends, there is a bigger and better story going on. We're tempted to read this passage in light of all the discord in the world and think, you know what, maybe we just need to hole up and pull back and limit our association and maybe we can reduce the damage going on in the world around us. But Nehemiah is creating a sense of longing for a new and better kingdom and he tells us this kingdom will be for all peoples and all nations. God is going out now in the power of His Spirit, calling people from all nations and all backgrounds and all places. No one here is too far to be beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. He's a better king, and in the power of His Spirit, He's pulling people in. In many ways, the sermon ends there, but on the first Sunday of every month, we eat this meal together the Lord's Supper. A meal that looks back at the life and ministry of Jesus. It's described first in the Gospels. It's the beginning of this next act of the Bible. Jesus takes the the feast of the Old Testament. He redefines it about himself. And he says, when my body's broken, when my blood's poured out, you can have life and forgiveness. But I want to close today and introduce this table by reminding you that the table not only looks back, it looks forward. And just as Nehemiah ended with this sense of anticipation, there's something better coming. We haven't fully arrived yet. This meal is meant to do that too. There's something better. The kingdom of God is already here. The Spirit is already poured out, but it's not yet in its fullness. The the vision of the prophets are more fully realized, but they're not yet fully here. So the Bible closes with these words, words of anticipation. Come, Lord Jesus. That's how I invite you to eat today. We have a far greater hope than Nehemiah had. And yet we still long for something more. There is another act to come. There is a return of Jesus, the restoration of all things, all tears wiped away, all things made right. Death and evil forever banished the new heavens and the new earth. And so, friends, would you join with me? Would you join with Nehemiah with a spirit of expectation and anticipation of something greater? Let's pray together. Father, we lack. We pray you cause us to long for more.